Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. This week, I'm going to have to go solo. John Fenstwald has skipped the country. I think I'll be back in a couple of weeks. I certainly hope so. But this week, in John's absence, EdSource took a close look at a major challenge facing teachers in many communities around California, the very high cost of housing, which makes it impossible for many of them to even live in the districts where they teach, let alone buy housing there. Related to this, pressures are growing on the state to come up with more money for California school districts, not only to hopefully bump up teacher salaries, but to cover budget deficits in school districts like Los Angeles and Oakland, which, as most of you know, both experienced major teacher strikes this year. But first, let's look at the out-of-control increases in housing costs that affects not only teachers, of course, but school personnel across the board. EdSource took a look at what proportion of a teacher's salary would be needed to rent even modest apartments in different areas around the state. And we actually have a neat database on our website, which will give some indication of where the problems are most acute. And uh, if you're a teacher, you can type in your salary and get a sense of what you might be able to afford in the area where you are teaching or would like to teach. To talk about all of this, we're very pleased to have on the line Diana Lambert, who took the lead in reporting for EdSource on this issue. She was helped along the way with great data analysis and data visualization from Danny Willis, Sunny Shee, and Justin Allen, all on EdSource's staff. So, Diana, you talked with a bunch of teachers. Uh, What did you come up with? Yes, I did. And basically, I found that they all agree that teacher salaries in California aren't keeping up with rents, especially in the coastal areas. Almost every teacher I spoke to, especially the newer teachers, said they have some short-term plan to leave the area, if not the state. And uh, one of the interesting things I heard over and over again were teachers saying that they felt they had to be married to remain a teacher, that they had to have a second income in order to stay in the Bay Area, especially. But of course, this is a national trend. I mean, increasingly, people need two incomes to make a go of it. In in fact, I I remember Elizabeth Warren wrote a book called The Two-Income Trap that over the last several decades, just making ends meet requires two incomes. And that seems to be uh, very much the case with teachers as well. It, it is, but I think in the Bay Area particularly, these teachers feel that their wages aren't even enough to be half of a family income. They really would need to have someone who is making a substantial income in the family in order to stay here. Diana, give us a sense of what the scope of the problem is then. Well, our analysis found that in nearly 40% of the 680 California school districts that reported their salary data to the state, first-year teachers did not earn enough to rent an affordable one-bedroom apartment. And in more than a quarter of school districts, the highest-paid teachers could not afford to rent a three-bedroom house or apartment. And we also found that the gap between teacher pay and housing costs is widest in the Bay Area. In nearly 90% of the districts, teachers do not earn enough to rent an affordable two-bedroom apartment. And, of course, one of the biggest challenges is for beginning teachers. I mean, if the salaries are only in the mid to high 40s, right, 40,000, And of course, younger teachers may not be married, may not have partners. And so they would be pretty reliant on their incomes. That's true. And what I found were teachers living with their parents or moving back in with their parents, teachers who live with two and three roommates, 
teachers who had converted a living room space in their house for additional roommates. Teachers generally were making, actually, the ones I talked to were like forty-two and $43,000 incomes. And of course, what we're talking about here is just to rent. It's not to buy a house. And that came up often in my conversations with teachers. They really would like to at least know that someday they could buy a house, and they felt that that was out of their reach here in California, like I said, particularly in the coastal communities. And some were planning to move just for that reason, that they wanted to move so they could go buy a home somewhere else. This could accentuate the shortages of teachers that have been well-documented and people are quite concerned about. Right, and teachers are leaving these districts for other communities in California and out of state. And now we're seeing districts trying to build affordable housing to keep them here or to attract new teachers. We're talking with Diana Lambert, Ed Source's reporter who has been reporting on the pressures on teachers to find housing that they can afford. One of the things you looked at is districts trying to provide housing for at least some of their teachers so they can actually live in the district where they work. How many districts are actually doing that and how many are planning to? As best as we can tell, there are three districts that have built housing for teachers and staff. But now we have another eight districts just recently who have decided to at least consider building houses for staff and teachers. And three of those actually are moving forward and are going to do that. What are the three that have actually done it? San Mateo Community College District, Santa Clara Unified, and Los Angeles Unified. Uh, What about San Francisco? They're planning to do it. The other three are the ones who've already done it. Because isn't San Francisco kind of ground zero where this is happening? San Francisco's never built affordable housing until the one they're planning to do now. And that will be completed in 2023. Wow. So that doesn't sound like a real strategy to reach large numbers of teachers. It seems like only a tiny number of districts have done it. And not that many more actually have things on the drafting board to move forward on on providing housing. That may be, but it seems that there are a lot more thinking about it than there were 10 years ago. And another thing is there's a general obligation bond that was passed in Jefferson Union High School District to build a affordable housing. And the person who helped them with that was Dale Scott and company. And he said there are 20 districts who have come to him looking to get general obligation bonds on the ballot to build teacher affordable housing. So we may see more coming up. So this may become a common feature of what districts have to do going forward. I mean, certainly in some of these high-cost areas of the state, providing housing. Exactly. And he said some of these people who came to him, some districts that came to him about general obligation bonds weren't from the high-cost coastal areas and were even from the rural areas who have a shortage of housing, period. So they're looking to build teacher housing. Of course, this is an issue for the entire state. Governor Newsom has been pushing and really drilling down on local communities to do more to deal with uh, the shortage of housing. But, uh, Diana, obviously the strategy of coming up with affordable housing for teachers is, is only going to reach a certain segment. What else should be done or what else could be done to address this issue? It would be up to the legislature to come up with more funding to address the issue, either in salaries or to put funding toward a teacher housing. That was EdSource reporter Diana Lambert. One other note, Mike Kirst, who is the former president of the State Board of Education and one of the main architects of the local control funding formula, suggested in a comment he appended to Diana's story that the formula might 
need to be adjusted to take into account local differences in cost of living. And Mike tells us that New York, Texas, and Florida all do this, and that he actually designed a system in Florida in 1973 to adjust for the different costs in a state that spans the Alabama border all the way to Miami. So uh, this is not a new idea, something California might want to consider. Much of this comes down to whether California will be able to come up with additional funds so that districts can pay teachers more, among other things. We'll be back to look at that in a moment. fallout from the teacher strikes in Oakland and Los Angeles were the appeals from those districts and school boards who passed the contracts that were agreed to after the strikes there for the state to come up with additional funds. What can the state do to raise these funds in significant enough amounts that would make a real difference in the budgets of individual school districts? We're pleased to have on the line Kim Rubin, who is the Sol Price Fellow and Director of the State and Local Finance Initiative at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center in Washington, D.C. That's quite a mouthful, but uh, Kim is doing important work and also uh, is very, very knowledgeable about California. Spent about 10 years here at the Public Policy Institute of California, based here in San Francisco. Glad you could join us today, Kim. I'm happy to be here. There's a lot of pressure right now on the legislature to come up with more money to support education. One proposal that has been floated in recent weeks, uh, Senator Nancy Skinner, a representative here from Berkeley and other East Bay lawmakers, want to put an income tax on the 2,000 highest earning corporations in the state, making over $10 million in income a year. And part of the increase would be based on how much the gap was between what the CEO makes and the median wage of their workers. And the bigger the gap, the higher the income tax rate would be. What's your take on that? Is that a realistic proposal? Well, it's an interesting proposal. It's also kind of interesting that they're talking about it in terms of funding education. Because I think what they're trying to do are two things. One is, yes, California lags other states on a per-pupil funding amount. And so it might be useful to have more money for schools. But that is something that, you know, the state needs to decide where it wants to put its money. But there is this growing issue and something that I think is also a priority about whether the state and policymakers can do something about growing income inequality across people. And in a state like California, there is a lot of income inequality where the people at the very top are making a lot of money and there are a lot of people who are below the poverty line or, you know, much poorer than the people at the very top. And so that's something we find in the state. But it's also something if you look within companies, you see much more inequality than, say, 20 or 30 years ago. And so in part, I think The bill is in part to try and answer that other question. Is there a way to incentivize companies to have their wages and the amount people earn much more balanced than it is right now? And it's an interesting approach. The only place 
that I know of that's done something like this is Portland, where they've actually had a tax on companies that have more unequal wages. But it is something that other places are also considering, though it hasn't really passed or gotten much traction yet. The so-called pay ratio tax bill, that, that's been attempted before in California and hasn't gone anywhere in the legislature. There is this concern about whether if you're trying to single out corporations and what's going on within the corporation, is there some fear or is there some possibility that people will leave and they will just sort of take the corporate headquarters or move companies out of the state? And that's something that we don't necessarily see a lot of activity, but it is a concern and you don't necessarily want to get rid of the companies that are thriving. This is just one proposal that's now on the table, but what are some of the other ways that California could consider generating revenues? And it would have to be in fairly significant amounts to, to make a difference for schools across the state. There are interesting things going on in California. The first one is Proposition 13, which limits how much property taxes can go up or how much assessments can go up. And right now, California's constitution says that you can't charge commercial property differently than residential property. And so part of what's on the ballot coming up in 2020 is a bill to try and separate that and make California more like other states. So in a lot of other states, you have different tax rates for business property, for residential property, for multifamily property, for farm property, whereas in California, it all needs to be assessed at the same rate. And so that would be something that would free up the ability for local governments or local voters to have more control on how much money is raised. Because the other thing that happened with Proposition 13 is a lot of the control for property taxes and how it's allocated to schools and to other governments moved from the local government's control to the state. And so in California, unlike other places, there's much less ability for people within a place to decide on how much their taxes will be and what kind of services they can have. So I did want to ask you about some other ideas that are not prominent on the radar, but what is a tax on services? I mean, California's economy is basically a service economy, but that really hasn't happened. Is that something that should be explored? I think it should be. So New Mexico has a lot of they've changed their sales tax. So it's a much broader base where you're not only paying taxes on, say, when you buy a set of tennis balls, you would also pay a service tax on if you had a gym membership. So that's something certainly California could consider. They can. Also, we funded early childhood services through a cigarette tax. There are also things like sports gambling and marijuana. But in general, because California has these rules because of the initiative, in terms of needing voter approval or supermajorities for new tax increases, it becomes more complicated. We're talking with Kim Rubin, who is at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Let me just throw out a couple of other ideas quickly. Oil extraction tax. I gather that California is the only major oil-producing state that doesn't impose a tax. Any thoughts on that as a strategy? 
So personally, that is the strategy I would love for California to go forward with. That's something that's been on the ballot a couple of times. And the opponents to it have been very successful at convincing people who live in California that this would raise the price for their oil and gas. If we think about a state like Alaska or Texas, they have pretty high taxes on their extractions or natural resources because largely the consumers for those goods and activities are outside of the state. California isn't taxing that in part because a lot of that oil is used in the state, but it isn't necessarily the case that the state would have a different price for their oil or gas, natural gas, if that tax was in place. Okay, and I understand that could raise as much as $2 billion for K-14 education. And then uh, lastly, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. Um, I gather that California stopped collecting its own revenue from an estate tax quite a few years ago. There's some talk of reimposing a California estate tax. So that's something where most states had been piggybacking off of the federal estate tax. And so... As the federal government increased the amount of estates that were exempt from paying those taxes, many states went along. And so California could put a lower level in place, like they can lower that to, say, $5 million or $2 million. So estates over that amount would have to collect the tax. There, the big fear is whether that would just have people change where they're reporting their income. You know, what strikes me in this discussion is that uh, a lot of pressures right now, a lot of people calling on the legislature to come up with more money for schools. But uh, this is a technical, very technical issue, not something that's that easy to accomplish. Well, I think it's hard. And it also is hard when you think about what you're trying to accomplish and whether you're looking to increase spending on schools this year, or whether you're looking to increase spending on schools in sort of a regular way going forward. And so I think I applaud the legislature for thinking about what they're hoping to accomplish. And I'm just hoping that even if they pass new taxes, or they think about what's going on with the revenues that are coming in, that they think seriously about how they want to spend that money rather than just saying that they want to spend more money. Well, this is certainly an issue that's directly on the policy agenda right now and presumably will be for the next several years. We've been talking with Kim Rubin, who is director of the State and Local Finance Initiative at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you and good luck. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Thanks, Kobe. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.